never meet your heroes. Have you ever heard that phrase? Never meet your heroes or never meet your idols. That's another way of saying it. Why? Because generally you're disappointed, right? You have this expectation of them, you have them on a pedestal, you think they're so great, and then you meet them, and oftentimes you are disappointed in who they actually are. That can be said for Samson. And I bet that's how Israel felt as they started meeting Samson and getting to know Samson. They were disappointed in him. If you remember back to last week in Judges chapter 13, we expected big things from Samson when that, when that chapter closed. In chapter 13, we see that even before he was born, God sent the angel of the Lord to his mom, who was barren, couldn't have children, and, and had the message that you are going to have a child. Manoah's wife, her name's not in the Bible. So Manoah's wife, you're going to have a child. And this child is going to be consecrated to the Lord, set apart for the Lord's work. He's going to be a Nazarite. He's going to focus on the Lord his entire life. And he's going to be the one to take the lead in delivering the Israelites from slavery to the Philistines. At the end of chapter 13, we hear that the Spirit of the Lord was stirring in Samson. It's set up to be this amazing hero. And yet we're going to be utterly disappointed in Samson. In fact, what we're going to see in Samson, Samson is your first point this morning. Samson is a walking contradiction. God says one thing about him. You are consecrated, Samson. You are set aside for the Lord's work. And yet we see him living a completely different life. And so here's the question we're going to focus on this morning. What does God do when his chosen one doesn't live up to the expectations of the chosen one? What happens when the consecrated desecrate themselves? What happens when the ones who are supposed to be serving God serve themselves? How does God respond in those moments? That's what we're going to look at as we turn to chapter 14. We, we are taking highlights from chapters 14 and 15 today. And so we're going to begin with chapter 14 and we're going to get introduced to Samson. Here's what we're told. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I've seen the Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among our own people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. Let's stop right there. Samson, what are you doing? <laughs> you are set apart, consecrated to the Lord, for what purpose? To deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And you are going to go and marry into the family? It's a little hard to deliver your people 
when your people also include the enemy. This is like Romeo, Romeo and Juliet marrying. Two enemy families. How can you fight against family? You're marrying into the very people that God said you're going to deliver your people from them. Not to mention, look at Samson's attitude. He was walking in Timnah and sees this girl and he says, you know what? She's pretty hot. Dad, get her for me as my wife. He hasn't even said a single word to her. He just saw her. Let's get this marriage done, Dad. Samson does what Samson wants to do. And even after Dad and Mom try to convince him otherwise, he says, no, 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 she's right for me. Here's what happens. Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring toward him. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. He told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and he liked her. Well, that's good. At least you're not just attracted to her. You're, the woman you want to marry, you like her a little bit. That's a good thing. Sometime later, when he went back to marry her, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass, and in it he saw a swarm of bees and some honey. He scooped out the honey with his hands, and he ate as he went along. When he rejoined his parents, he gave them son, some, and they ate it too. They too ate it. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. Do you remember the Nazarite vow that was supposed to rule his life? God said before he was born, uh, Mrs. Manoah's wife, that uh, Samson is not supposed to drink wine, he's not supposed to cut his hair, and he's not supposed to touch carcasses, dead things. One, he completely ripped the lion in half. You talk about a Marvel movie, uh, this is Samson. He's like Captain America or Hulk. He just tears this lion apart. And then, a few days later, he sees the dead carcass, and he sees honey in it, and he scoops them out, desecrating himself, making him ceremonially unclean. Because why? Samson does what Samson wants to do. And not only does he make himself unclean, he brings his parents in on it too, and they don't even know it. They don't even know what Samson did. And now they're unclean as well. Now they have to get ceremonially cleansed before they can go into the temple. Only problem, Samson didn't tell them what he did. So they don't even know it. Samson does what Samson wants to do. They go down to Timnah. Mom and dad set up the wedding. The wedding commences. And in those days, the, the reception lasted seven days. And so at the beginning of the seven days, Samson tells his 30 groomsmen, if you think your wedding was big, check out his wedding party. 30 groomsmen, a riddle. And he says, if you guys solve the riddle before the end of the seven days, I'll give you each a set of clothes. But if you don't solve it, all of you owe me 30 sets of clothes. And so what do they do? They start pressuring his wife. Tell us the answer. Tell us the answer. Samson wouldn't tell her what the answer to the riddle was. Until day seven. 
the last day he finally tells her what the answer is. And she goes and tells the 30 groomsmen, and they solve it. And Samson knows exactly, exactly what happened. We're not going to look at the, the verses here, but if you look at the verses right before verse 19, Samson says a, a poem about how they got it, and it's not flattering about his wife. Just completely criticizing her. Calls her a heifer. Not exactly a, a good one on your, just after being married there, Samson. And here's what happens. He gets so angry, here's what we're told. Then the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. He went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of everything, and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he returned to his father's home. And Samson's wife was given to one of his companions who had attended him at the feast. Part of the gifts that Samson was given from God was strength. We saw him tear apart a lion. He had a massive amount of strength. Strength. And look what he did with it. He's so angry that he goes down to Ashkelon, a town that has nothing to do with what's going on in Timnah, and he goes and he kills 30 random guys, strips them of their clothes, and hands it over to the ones who solved the riddle. God had blessed him with this spiritual gift and what did Samson do? He used it for what Samson wanted to do. Not what God wanted him to do. Murdering people is not God-pleasing. That's why God made a commandment about it, the fifth commandment. And yet Samson took his gift of strength and used it for what he wanted to do. And then in anger and bitterness, he says, I'm going back to my dad's house. And goes and hides out at dad's. His wife gets handed over to one of the 30 groomsmen at the wedding. We turn to chapter 15. Later on, at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his, visit his wife. He said, I'm going to my wife's room. But her father would not let him go in. Real nice, Samson. Uh, you just go and barge in and tell father-in-law, I'm going to my wife's room. This guy's just an arrogant guy. He just, I'm going to do what I want to do. It's the end of the wheat harvest. He's out in the field. And what are the guys talking about at the end of the wheat harvest? They're getting ready to shut down the jobs for the winter. They're talking about getting home to their wife. And it stirs up in Samson, hey, yeah, I have that wife back in Timnah. And so he gets a really romantic gift, a goat. <laughs> if only we would have done this one, uh, this, this chapter a few weeks ago. Anne's birthday was October 23rd. I could have got her a young goat and said, happy birthday. But he takes a goat and he goes down there and look at him. He just barges in and look what his, his father-in-law says. I was so sure you hated her that I gave her to your companion. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. Real nice, Dad. You know what kind of guy this is. I'm telling you, Judges is just a mess from all aspects. Samson said to them, this time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. So he went out and caught 300 foxes and tied them tail to tail in pairs. He then fastened a torch to every pair of tails, lit the torches, and let the foxes loose in the standing grain of the Philistines. He burned up the shocks and standing grain, together with the vineyards and olive groves. 
Samson, what kind of strength and agility must that take to catch 300 foxes, tie their tails up, light a torch, and then send them into the village? And notice where they go. Where the grain is, and he burns up all their food. Remember what time of year it is? It's right after the harvest. That is their year's supply of food. And he just burned it all up. And you can imagine, they aren't happy about this. And so they said, who did this? And they find out it was Samson. So guess what the Philistines do? They take his dad-in-law and his wife, who's not really his wife anymore, put them in a house and burn the house down. Samson uh, is obviously not okay with this. He goes irate, and we're told that he viciously attacked the Philistines and killed many of them. And after he killed many of them, he goes down to a cave where he's hanging out. Now the Philistines are not happy with the Jewish people because they've got this problem and his name is Samson. And they're making life rough for the Jewish people. So 3,000 Jewish men come to the cave where Samson is and say, Samson, what are you doing? Don't you know that our life is good with the Philistines ruling over us? You're causing problems for us. We've come to arrest you to hand you over. So Samson lets them tie him up, goes with them, and here's what happens. As he approached Lehi, the Philistines came toward him shouting. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax, and the bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Then Samson said, With the donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. With the donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. When he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone, and the place was called Ramath-Lehi. Because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, You have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God opened the hollow place in Lehi, and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned, and he revived. So the spring was called En-Hakor, and it is still there in Lehi. Samson does what again? Touches a dead corpse. Touches that jawbone of a donkey, dead corpse, and he strikes down a thousand men. Again, murder. And then he prays probably one of the most arrogant prayers in all of Scripture. He looks up to heaven and says, You gave your servant a great victory. Must I now die of thirst, Lord? Samson does what Samson wants to do. Samson does not live like God says he should and called him to. You are consecrated, Samson, for the Lord. You are set apart for the Lord, and yet look how you're living. And we look at Samson and we say, come on, man. Come on, and we shake our head in disappointment. But do you know what Samson teaches about you and me? It's your second point. I, too, am a walking contradiction. We've looked at this verse a couple times over the last couple weeks, but Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says that God, before the creation of the world, knew you and chose you to be his own. He chose you and me to be his own, and then he predestined all things so that the word of God would come into our life, touch our hearts, and the Holy Spirit will work faith that Jesus is our Savior. And then at our baptism, when that water 
with God's word, washes over our heads. God put his name on us and said, you are my child, my consecrated one, set apart. That is who we are. We are God's chosen people, set apart for God. And yet as we look at our lives, do we see someone who's living, consecrated for the Lord, or do we see someone who's living like Samson? As God's chosen one, as God's consecrated people, do we say, God, I'm going to choose my friends and my spouse with, of those who build me up in you. That's who I want. I want somebody who's going to build me up in Jesus. Or do we say, you know what, God, I know those people are anti-you, but they're the right one for me. God has consecrated us, set us apart to be his people to live for him. And he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, every physical blessing. He has blessed us and equipped us for every good work. And yet, do we use those gifts for his glory? Or like Samson, do we take the spiritual blessings that God gives us and use it how we want to use those blessings? Or do we not use them at all? afraid to take a risk to make use of those blessings. Or we just don't want to use them, period, and so we don't make use of them. We are God's consecrated ones, set apart. Set apart, and we know that our God is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is sitting on his throne. And with the election two days away, do we have the peace knowing that God is in control of all things? That no matter who wins, God is on his throne, and that he promises he's going to work good for, the, for those who love him. Or our hearts rattled with fear. Do we live like consecrated ones with love? Or do we go with everybody else and display anger? And our talk about other people is always negative. And we critique other people who have a different view than we do. We are God's consecrated ones. And yet, do we live that consecrated life? Or like Samson, do we desecrate ourselves doing what we want to do? All of a sudden, that, that question at the beginning of the sermon is a lot more personal, isn't it? What does God do with his chosen one, who doesn't live like his chosen one? How does he respond? What's he do? Because God's demands are perfectly clear in Scripture. Be holy as your heavenly, or be holy, therefore, as the Lord your God is holy. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God lays it out there. And so what does God do? If he demands perfection and holiness, what's that mean for you and me? This is why we praise God for your third point. And that is that God is a seeming contradiction. God is holy and he's perfect and he's just and he's righteous. And he demands perfection. And when his chosen ones don't, he really should get rid of us. But he doesn't. Why? Because of another hero. Because of another miraculous birth. 
because of another hero who has all the expectations of the world, all the expectations of the Old Testament and the prophets, all the expectations of God on his shoulders, and he was born to the Virgin Mary. Jesus, God's son. Through him, God has love and forgiveness for you and me. This hero took on all of the expectations of the world, all of the expectations of God, and he lived perfectly, fulfilling everything. Not as your example, but in your place as your substitute. And when he died on the cross, we've got this seeming contradiction meeting. God's holiness, justice, righteousness, perfection, demand, taken out on Jesus. And flowing from the cross, love, forgiveness, mercy, and patience. How does God deal with you and me? Through Jesus. Here's how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. So before Jesus died for us, we were what? Powerless and ungodly. But, let's read verse 8 together. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died for you and me. And through him, you are justified, declared innocent before God. And that contradiction for God is met at the cross. And now how does God treat you? With patience with love, with mercy. And that's what we see with Samson. God doesn't send a lightning bolt and strike Samson dead. Instead, he shows love, mercy, and patience. In fact, God does this. It's our last point today. Because of Jesus, God now works despite us and through us. Samson lived the exact opposite life that God wanted him to live, and yet God worked despite Samson. But God also worked through Samson to carry out his will. And the same is true for you and me. Because of Jesus, the love, patience, mercy of God is with you and me. And he works despite us. Even when, when we fail, when we don't live up to our chosen status, God still works his will. And he's there with his love and his forgiveness and his mercy to build us up. But then he also works through you and me. He works through us to accomplish his will in this life. And it's all because of Jesus. This is what the Reformation was all about. Getting back to this message. That even though we fail, that we are justified, declared righteous in God's sight, because of Jesus. And it's because of him that God works despite us and through us. God be with you as you grow in your Savior this week and know without a doubt that he's working through you, he's forgiving you, he's loving you, his mercy is with you, and he's patient with you as you live up to that status of a consecrated one, set apart for God. Our Lord is with you as you do this. May God be with us as we accomplish this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you 
that your love and forgiveness and patience is with us because of our hero, Jesus. He never disappoints. He's never uh, failed. He is always perfect, and he's done so for us. And we thank you for his love that drove him to the cross. Through the shedding of his blood, we stand before you innocent of all charges, righteous before you, and with that, that status of a consecrated one. Help us to live out that calling this week uh, and all days so that more and more people may see the love of Jesus shine through us. Be with us as we accomplish this. Amen.